we're continuing our Lost the Plot series um, where we are looking at the defense, the sermon, the story that Stephen tells in the book of Acts when he is confronted by the religious leaders who have accused him of wanting to uh, destroy the temple, of setting aside the law, of proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, and he's facing death. They've got stones in their hands ready to kill him, and his defense is to tell them the story of their history, to remind them of what God has been doing, how that has its culmination in Jesus, and how they have really lost the plot, how, they, how they've missed the point by not seeing what he's doing. He goes through and he tells the story of several Old Testament characters who have been significant people in the lives of the history of the Jewish people. And over the last couple weeks, we have been looking at how he addresses the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis. Now, Joseph was one of the uh, sons of Jacob, who was later named Israel. And his sons kind of make up the 12 tribes of Israel, so to speak. And when Pastor Dana was here a couple weeks ago, he told us about the early years of Joseph, where he was kind of the favorite son of his father. And his father makes him the Technicolor dream coat and gives it to him, and all his brothers are jealous. And Joseph didn't help himself by, you know, having these dreams and explaining them, kind of flaunting them in front of his brothers, saying, one day you guys are going to bow down to me, which makes brothers feel fantastic about each other. And, uh, and that led to a lot of animosity. That came to a head at one point where his brothers actually plot to kill him, but instead they decide, oh, we'll do the next worst thing and sell him into slavery in Egypt. Last week we looked at what happened in some of the initial years in Egypt where Joseph works at the household of a man named Potiphar, and he's, he's given this place of great prestige. We, we read that God kind of gives him favor and gives him the ability to manage Potiphar's household well. He come, becomes kind of chief of operations there. But this incident happens where Potiphar's wife uh, makes a move at him, which uh, Joseph uh, turns down. However, she grabs his cloak and accuses him of, of sexual assault. And so he is thrown into prison and spends years there. And our sermon last week was diving into the reality that in the midst of Joseph's suffering, God was with him. This week, we are going to continue in Joseph's story. We're going we're gonna to look at Stephen's version of the events first, and then we'll dive in a bit deeper. But this is in Acts chapter 7, verses 9 and forward. It says, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob, Joseph's father, heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. 
After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and the whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our ancestors died and their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought with the son, from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Stephen really dives into the story of Joseph, which is why we're spending three weeks diving into it. But this part of Joseph's story that we're going to dive into really picks up from Joseph in prison where God is with him. We read in in Genesis 39 about how God was with him and gave him favor with the, uh, the, the wardens of the prison, so to speak. So they put him in charge of certain responsibilities. And he was there and he, he did well in prison for the most part, even though he was there for a long time for something he didn't do. However, we're told in a detail that this is the same prison that Pharaoh used. And so he sent his baker and his cupbearer to prison. Um, kings get suspicious for, of the people that are close to them. And so he threw them in prison. And, and both of these men had strange dreams while they're in prison. And we're told that God gave Joseph the ability to interpret these dreams. And so God is not just present with Joseph, but he is working in Joseph's life to to give him the ability to interpret these dreams. And so he interprets the dream of the cupbearer and the baker, and they're two very different outcomes. To one, he says, you're going to be restored to the king's service. And to the other, he said, the king's going to have your head. Two very different dreams. And so what happens is exactly what he predicted in interpreting the dreams. Uh, The baker loses his head and the cupbearer ends up going back into the king's service. Two years later, Pharaoh starts having strange dreams. And he's trying to figure out what it means. And if you are the head of a country that your politics and religion are so intertwined, you are assuming every dream you have is a message from the gods. And so this strange reoccurring dream that Pharaoh has, no doubt he is thinking there is gravity and weight to it. And he's trying to figure out what it means. Luckily, his cupbearer had a man in prison who helped interpret his dream. And so he remembers Joseph and tells Pharaoh, listen, there is this guy that I met and he knows how to interpret dreams. And so Pharaoh brings Joseph out of prison and brings him into his presence and he interprets Pharaoh's dream. And part of this dream is that there is going to be seven years of abundant harvest for Egypt followed by seven years of famine. And what this means is this interpretation of of we need to prepare for this famine that is coming. And so Joseph is put in charge as kind of the, the guy who is going to make sure that Egypt doesn't starve through the famine, that we store up the, the food that we need over the next seven years in order to get through the seven years of famine that come afterwards. Now, seven years later, famine hits. And the rest of the Middle East is going through famine while Egypt, because of 
Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dream is thriving. They've stored up enough wheat that will last them through the hard years. And so the rest of, of the area is coming to Egypt, trying to buy grain from the Egyptians, including Joseph's family. His brothers come now on behalf of his aging father to come and buy grain to support their family through the years of the famine. And there's this weird back and forth of like they come and then he won't give them anything unless they bring their, his, the youngest brother because Joseph doesn't trust them. And anyway, there's this whole back and forth exchange. Ultimately, what happens is Joseph breaks down and he reveals to them who he is. And he invites them to come and to live in Egypt under his protection to bring his father And so they all move to Egypt, and they're able to live in this land of plenty, so to speak, in the midst of the famine. But then Joseph and his brother's father dies. Jacob passes away. And there's this sense of suspicion and fear amongst the other brothers that, listen, now that dad's dead, there's really nothing keeping Joseph from getting back at us. And I know some of you have probably experienced in your own family, like an aging parent is kind of the glue that keeps the family together, and once they pass away, all hell breaks loose. This was the fear in this situation that Joseph, who is now the one in power, who now could throw his brothers into prison or have them decapitated or whatever, is going to get back at his brother's. And so the brothers come to him and they say, listen, your dying father's last wish is that you'd forgive us. (laughs) And this is what Joseph says back. Genesis chapter 50. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph sees the immeasurable heartache and suffering that he was put through at the hands of his brothers, at the hands of Potiphar's wife. Like everything that he has gone through, He recognizes that suffering happened and and others meant it out of hatred, out of jealousy, out out of offense towards him. But there's something in Joseph where he is able to step back and say, that was horrible. But look what God was able to do in the midst of that. If you hadn't sold me into slavery, if I hadn't been thrown into prison, if, if I hadn't been able to go through that and interpret those dreams and be brought before Pharaoh, like there are millions of lives that have been saved through famine because God chose to work through these moments of suffering. There's a deeply profound truths about suffering that we are working through. Last week, talking about God in the, in, is present in the midst of suffering. And this week, we are diving into this passage which is showing us how God will redeem and even work through the evil and suffering that exists in the world. 
Here's the thing, though. Some important pillars for us to have in place as we dive into this. When we talk about God redeeming and working through the suffering and evil that exists in the world, what we are not saying is that God is the author of evil and suffering. God does not create evil. God does not cause others to act in sinful ways. We do that naturally on our own. And if you know yourself, you know, listen, it doesn't take much for me to go the way of evil and sin. Instead of God being the author of evil, we see a God who hates evil and who is sacrificially working to eradicate creation of evil while still trying to not eradicate humanity. We'll dive into that a little bit later. We have a fallen nature to us. And in the biblical account, ever since the Garden of Eden and the choice that Adam and Eve made there, human beings are well enough capable of causing evil and suffering in this world. If, if you want to get into kind of the philosophical arguments of it, the, people talk about this, this free will argument of why there is evil and suffering in the world. That God chose to create human beings with the ability to have to f- a freedom of their will in that we would be able to genuinely love and respond to God. That he didn't create us robots. He created us to be those who can genuinely love and respond and be in relationship to him. The thing is, is in order to have genuine love and freedom in that, we also genuinely have the capacity to choose not that. And we see that in the garden. And we see that in our own lives. Except for us, we're, we're even another step further where our hearts are in bondage to sin. Our hearts are, are naturally drawn to what is not of God. And so we have this choice of, of do we pursue Jesus or do we pursue everything else? And our just natural alignment on the car is to pursue everything else. So we look at the world and we see the state of things and we're like, it shouldn't actually surprise us because we're really good at doing that as human beings. God has sacrificially chosen to try to eradicate, not try, he will eradicate the world of evil and he wants to do it while still preserving humanity which is the chief cause of evil in the world. We'll get into that further later. But what God does in the face of a humanity that creates and causes and amplifies evil in the world, he is able to take the messes that we create and use them and weave them into his grander uh, work of the eradication of evil in the world. He's able to take our mess and use it and work in the midst of it in his plan to restore the cosmos. Paul references this in in the book of Romans where in the famous line, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. In all things, 
Meaning in the difficulty and in the suffering and in the evil that humanity causes, God is able to work even through those for the good that he is trying to bring about. I need to stop saying trying. He is bringing about. The next thing we're diving into, that God redeems suffering for something greater. This was Joseph's perspective. That the suffering he went through, God was able to redeem that for the sake of the thousands of lives saved in the famine. God redeems suffering for something greater. Again, Paul, who wrote a lot about suffering, has some very profound thoughts on this. And rightly so. Because if you look at Paul's story, he was a guy who suffered profusely. You read the book of Acts and see what the guy went through. Like, we, we see Stephen being stoned and, and Paul is there like holding the guy's coats while they're gonna stone him. Like he was on that side of, of the line at that point. But later on, when God converts him and uses him as a missionary, like Paul himself got stoned by others and like was left for dead and somehow survived and, you know, was dragged out of the city only to go to the next city and continue preaching Jesus. Like the guy suffered. He, he goes on in, in one of his passages about, um, one of the letters he wrote about like, this is how many shipwrecks I faced. This is how many lashings I got at the hands of the Jews. This is, you know, this is the suffering that I've been through. And here in 2 Corinthians 4, he says this, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. He says, we always carry around in our body the death of Christ so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. Here's, Here's what I think he's getting at here. I highlighted the so that's. His perspective on his suffering is I'm experiencing this, but there's something greater that God is going to bring out in the midst of it. The suffering is bad, and it hurts, and it's terrible. But he's doing it so that Jesus can be revealed in our mortal bodies. He's doing it so that the life of Jesus might be seen in us. In his mission that God put him on to spread the gospel around the Roman Empire, he said he's... he's, communicating that the persecution, the suffering, the pain that he is experiencing is actually being used by God to make things spread even more. We see this in Stephen's life. Where after he's stoned to death and becomes the first martyr of the church, the Christians get a sense of like, we're not really welcome here in Jerusalem. The kind of the, the heartbeat of religiosity in, in the Jewish faith. And so it drives the Christians out of Jerusalem and they go to Samaria and Judea and to the ends of the earth. Which if you remember Jesus' instructions in the first of the book of Acts, he's like, I want you to go and I want you to spread this news all over the place. And what we read in the, the first 
eight chapters of the book of Acts is they're holed up in Jerusalem. And they're loving what's going on here. The church is growing really big here. This is great. We can just stay in Jerusalem and and enjoy things here. But God used the, the martyrdom of Stephen to be the thing that caused the gospel to spread out into the region. So that the church wasn't just this group of people who believed Jesus was resurrected in Jerusalem, but that the surrounding regions see and hear and witness what is going on with this resurrected Messiah. That's the spark that led the missionary movement of the early church was the martyrdom of Stephen. Listen, it's always wise though for us to not jump there and to say, here's the good thing from the suffering. We still need to acknowledge that the suffering is terrible. That the martyrdom of Stephen is brutal and wrong. That what happened to Paul in his 40 lashings minus one and his shipwrecks, like like the things that he went through were terrible things. And yet God was able to use them to continue the work that he was doing. Let's keep reading in this passage. Verses 16 and onward, Paul goes further. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory, an eternal glory, sorry, that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Man, like the the guy's perspective on suffering is, you can tell he sees the big picture as someone who has suffered. And, and this, the, the part that I highlighted in yellow here, he has this very stark contrast, right? He talks about our troubles being light and momentary. And talks about the eternal outweighing glory that comes in the midst of it. He's saying like God is exchanging this suffering for something eternal and glorious that out of this, there is something greater, far greater that is going to come. It's not a one-for-one trade-off. The thing is, if we're honest, our hurts and our suffering and the pain of the world doesn't feel light and momentary. And I don't think Paul is actually trying to minimize our pain by using this language of it being light and momentary. What I think he's doing is showing how big the eternal weight of glory is in comparison. It doesn't mean that our pain and suffering is small or the pain and suffering of the world is small. It means that what God is going to do in spite of it and even through it, the eternal weight of the glory of the redemption of the cosmos through Jesus is so much vastly bigger and glorious and incredible 
that what we experience now when we see the fullness of it will seem so small in comparison. He's not minimizing our pain, but he's showing something even bigger. Our job loss isn't small, but eternity is bigger. Our church hurt isn't small. Eternity is bigger. The loss of a loved one or of a child or the diagnosis isn't small. But the weight of glory of eternity with Jesus is bigger. Paul invites us to fix our eyes not on what is seen but what is unseen. He wants us to fix our eyes on the bigger thing. To try to have that that bigger picture in light of eternity. Like, Like the song that we sang this morning, give me vision to see things like you do. To not have our heads in the clouds so that we naively shrug off the pain of the world but trust that the bigger redemption that God is doing when we experience that firsthand face-to-face with our Savior will make the suffering of our lives seem light and momentary in comparison. Lastly, I want to end with this. Is that Jesus is the ultimate picture of God redeeming evil and suffering. We have a God that doesn't just tell us that he's going to redeem our suffering. We don't just have a God that in our sacred scripture says, you know, you're going to face hard stuff, but you're just going to have to deal with it. We have a God who entered in and suffered with us and for us. And through that suffering, God brings about the eternal weight of glory, the redemption of the cosmos. We look on the cross and we see the culmination of the violent power of empire. We see the sadistic torture of unhinged soldiers who who can do what they want with someone. We see the backwards shadiness of a corrupted justice system. We see a religiosity that rejects rather than redeems. And we see the betrayal of a personal friend. We see evil and suffering in that moment. Yet God uses the evil of humans done to and placed upon Jesus on the cross to redeem those who would follow him. God chose to work in and through the suffering and evil of the world. And we can ask the question is, why doesn't God just get rid of everything evil? Why, why doesn't he just like snap his fingers and everything that is evil is gone and everything is, is better? And part of the answer is because he'd be getting rid of me. Because I am part of the evil in the world. And every one of us, our hearts are fallen And we are contributors to the sin and the suffering of the world. God could snap his fingers and do away with the evil of the world. And in doing so, he would be eradicating us. God's choice 
to redeem the fallen world means he will take the suffering upon himself. He will suffer for our evil. And he will offer forgiveness and renewal and cleansing. I think it was Dostoevsky who, who wrote about the line that separates good and evil what runs through the heart of every human being. And so the cross and the suffering of God is for us and because of us. And so we will struggle with the fact that there is evil and suffering in the world, but we also see a God who wants to address it and addresses it in a way that is gracious towards those of us who have caused evil and suffering. And maybe this morning you have not come to that place of saying the cross is for me. And I know in my heart this need for forgiveness for the evil and the sin and the suffering that I have caused. And I want you to know if that is you, that the cross is for you. That Jesus endured the suffering on your behalf. And he rose from the grave to offer the cleansing and forgiveness and renewal that you and I need. The answer to the suffering of the world is in the cross and the resurrection that promises one day all things will be made new. It started there and it will be accomplished. Until then, we want to join in and be part of God's working in the midst of suffering. Last week, we talked about how, how God uses those who have experienced his presence in suffering to be a comfort to others who are in the midst of suffering. And I also think in the midst of a world of suffering, God is inviting us to demonstrate his redeeming of suffering by entering into those places and being the help. So we look at the earthquake in, in Turkey and Syria, and I'm still wrestling with why didn't it get stopped? And I'm sure many of you are too. Anytime there's like a natural disaster that I can't point to like Hitler did it. You know what I mean? Like, I can't point to human sin there in the same way. I wonder why it wasn't stopped. And then I read the Joseph story, and I'm like, why wasn't the famine stopped? But then I look at the story, and I see, but God chose to use his people as a means of, of demonstrating him working and relieving and, and being at work in the midst of the situation. And I wonder if that's our role as God's people. So when I, I see our brothers and sisters in Turkey and Syria, you know, that we partner with, with CBM, who are like boots on the ground, who are helping to deliver food to families, who are working in the midst of the camps of people who have lost their homes. I see God at work using his people. And we're still going to struggle with why wasn't it stopped. And, and I struggle to find the answers for that one. But I think God is inviting us to act in the midst of moments of suffering to be a demonstration of him being at work. And in the lingering big questions 
of why wasn't the hurricane stopped or her, the earthquake stopped? Why wasn't the famine stopped? Why, why did God still let these things happen when I can't see some kind of big redemptive work happening in the midst of it? I think ultimately I need to land in a place of, but he's the God who suffered on the cross. And he's the God who rose again and he's the God who is choosing to work in the midst of suffering with the promise to eradicate the world of evil and suffering one day. And so if that is the God that I worship, I'm gonna trust him. Because I don't see the big picture in the way that he does. I don't see why he chooses to act or not act, but the way that I have seen him act is by suffering on the cross and rising for the, from the dead for me. And so if that is the God who is the one who is ultimately in charge behind the scenes, I'm going to have to trust him. And that means I'm not going to have all the answers means I might not have the perfect words to, you know, the atheist who calls me out for believing in a God that doesn't stop an earthquake. But I know what he's done in me. And I know the evil and suffering in my own heart that needs redeeming. And so I trust him. Let's pray. Jesus, you endured tremendous suffering on the cross for us. You experienced firsthand the evil of the world. And through it, you, you are bringing about a new creation. And many of us here, we have experienced that work of new creation in our own lives and our hearts. We've seen the depth of our our evil. We've seen our need to be redeemed from it. And, and Jesus, I pray that you would continue to invite people to that cross to find the forgiveness and the hope and the new life that you have, have suffered to give them. God, you, you're not a stranger to a messed up world. And you have, you have been in pain because of it much longer than we have. So God, ultimately, we, we long for the one day where we read that you will wipe every tear from every eye and there will be no more evil or pain or suffering, but God will be all in all. We long for that. We pray, come Lord Jesus. And we also pray, use us in the midst of a suffering world to demonstrate that kingdom that is coming in the present. It's in your name we pray. Amen.